part of pursuing an African agenda in the Security Council is putting Africa in the middle of how you consider the world. And rather than regarding yourself as peripheral, regarding yourself as at, at the center of the global system. Hello and welcome to the Mediator Studio. I'm your host, Adam Cooper. I'm here at the Oslo Forum, where mediators and other conflict actors from around the world have come to talk peace. With me today is Martin Kimani, Kenya's ambassador and permanent representative to the United Nations. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you. It's great to be here. I want to ask a little bit how you got thrust into the spotlight and took on this incredibly important role when Kenya secured its seat on the Security Council. How did that come about? Well, it's an appointment, a political appointment by President Kenyatta. It did catch me a bit by surprise because we were last in the Security Council in 1998 and we had been campaigning hard and it seemed to me that a very experienced and seasoned diplomat needed to handle this responsibility. But President Kenyatta chose for his own reasons to appoint me, but it came as a surprise. And so I was really the last member of the team to arrive in New York mm. almost at the end of 2020. It must have been a sign of trust that the president had in you that he thought this incredibly important job, sort of peak of diplomacy in a sense, was be something which you feel capable to do? I certainly hope he has trust in me and I certainly know he has a very bold vision for what we wanted to do in the Security Council. Whether we've managed to meet the height of expectations, I think it's for him to judge and for Kenyans to judge for themselves. Tell us about that vision. What was your brief? We had uh, a number of agenda priorities from peace and security in the region to strengthening counterterrorism, climate and security. These are very important goals for Kenya, especially uh, the regional peace and security uh, in the Horn of Africa and Africa more broadly. At the heart of our priorities was a desire to be a very clear voice for Africa and generally for the developing world, especially for small island and developing states who had really voted for us and shown us their trust. And to be a clear voice in the Security Council, speaking up for a region that is relatively weak in geopolitical terms, is not easy to do. And so I think if there's a single priority we have is to be bold, to be independent, and to be assertive in our positions in pursuit of African interests as we interpret them. And that agenda, that brief, that vision was given to you before the war in Ukraine. So talk us through a little bit how it then sort of intersected with the reality of what was being discussed at the Security Council and what that moment meant to you as Kenya, but also that broader constituency which you were hoping to give voice to. Just to send us back. In 1971, either 71 or 72, it was a speech by President Jomo Kenyatta who was anticipating our membership of the Security Council the next year. And he says, when we join the Security Council, we'll be a strong voice for Africa. So it's remarkable the amount of continuity there has been in that foreign policy posture. A strong voice for Africa in 1973 and a strong voice for Africa in 2022, 
two are different, but what they have in common is the desire to push back against a very long-standing impulse by powerful players to assert their interests in place of African priorities. And that continuity continued into the last decade of President Uhuru Kenyatta's presidency, which has been very pan-Africanist, has concerned itself greatly with peace and security issues in our region, has tried to curve a space for African unity within the global environment, uh, whether it's climate change, negotiations, etc. And it's not just President Kenyatta. A number of African leaders are very committed to this. So by the time we get to the Security Council, this is just clearly our posture. And part of pursuing an African agenda in the Security Council is putting Africa in the middle of how you consider the world. And rather than regarding yourself as peripheral, regarding yourself as at at the center of the global system, and then thinking of how the shifts in the global system are affecting your place. And that centering yourself is not an easy thing to do within the Security Council where the powers that be are there trying to establish themselves as the center. So tell us a bit about how it feels to try to assert that independence. Well, I think we have uh, worked very closely with the other African countries on, on the Security Council. And we've worked hard to be consistent and predictable. And we're usually very clear about why we take the positions we do. We want every one of our positions to be backed by a strong principle that defines our membership of the UN and our conduct. And as things come closer into our region, to also be very clear about the importance of our position for our region's security and stability. And uh, as long as you have unity within the African group, as long as you have a strong position from your capital, then it doesn't cause too much furor. But we did see that there obviously is a spectrum of interest and a spectrum of views ahead of the vote in, on Ukraine, you know, across the African continent. And you saw some who were with Western countries uh, and those who chose to abstain. And how did you sort of explain that in a way to Western interlocutors who were really applying a sort of intense pressure on, on everyone and were just trying to line up as much support as possible? I tried to advise them to not pose the question as a West versus East question, because then they would lose. I urged them to pose the question as a question of principle. Uh, Are you committed to the UN Charter? Are you committed to sovereignty and territorial integrity? There's nothing neutral about those questions. You either are or you're not. But the, the way the position was put was more that this is where the West stands, and the others stand on this side. So you now choose where you're standing. And I think that was a very difficult proposition for many African countries. And even those who voted for the resolution in the the General Assembly, I don't think most were doing it for that reason. I think most were doing it on the basis of, no, um, there's a principle that we hold to. But just because we hold to this principle 
we're not part of a camp, a geopolitical camp. I'm curious a little bit whether COVID had an impact on any of this. We touched on this a little bit yesterday in, in some of the discussions at the Oslo Forum on the sort of strategic conclusions that African countries drew from that experience. Could you expand a little bit more on that? I think COVID had a, a number of important impacts, uh, not least a public health impact, which is clearly the most significant. But it also led to the breaking of supply chains. The way the globalized economy worked is that you, you produce in a distributed fashion according to cost, efficiency, and speed. Then you gather your goods and services as need be, either to combine them in one other part of the world or to bring them to, to you. Once those supply chains broke because of COVID, it became more important to look for those goods and services you needed as close to you as you could find them. And so COVID created a greater appetite for regional independence in production. And that itself creates a mindset. Now, the fact that the way the vaccines were produced and distributed was in such a lopsided way with uh, the supplies of vaccines to this day being overwhelmingly in the industrialized world and with Africa having relatively few vaccines really undercut the principle of solidarity. It demonstrated the reality, which is that states are ultimately responsible for their own populations, and that is what they must hold to, and then everything else is secondary. And I think that itself, it's not necessarily a negative uh, conclusion, it's an obvious one, but for it to play out in the middle of a pandemic emergency, then I think has made African leaders more sensitive to the need for Africa to be able to manage its own crises. So when you bring then the, the next emergency, which is the war in Ukraine, the preceding events will suggest to Africa that it's very important that it respond from its own understanding and its own interests before the interests of others. Mm. And I think that's what we're seeing playing out. The broad point that you made in your speech uh, when the Ukraine vote was happening in the UN was to absolutely clearly criticize the violation of sovereignty of Ukraine, but in addition to make a larger point essentially calling out sort of hypocrisy to point to those double standards and that certain powerful countries have, have conducted invasions in the past as well and that actually we should use this moment to think about broader changes to the architecture of the international system. Could you just talk us through very briefly what that would actually mean in practice for you? Well, our statement, and it's important to say it's our statement, Kenya's statement, not my statement, referred not just to the recognition of these two breakaway republics of Ukraine, but also the preceding decades of other powerful countries going against these key principles. And also by highlighting Africa's choices, which is a profoundly moral choice to not pursue the shifting of unfair, arbitrary, and manipulative borders leading you to war, but rather seeking to eliminate them through attraction, through a process of integration and a process of coming together to find common purpose. 
That's the very profound choice at the core of the African Union. Africans chose a different path. We've had a lot of conflicts, but relatively few over borders. Some in the Horn of Africa that were, in fact, extremely damaging. Then we were also trying to give voice to the importance of all of us getting beyond empire. And the problem of empire is not just a problem in Europe. It's a problem all over the world. And the old empires, sometimes they seem like they are still clutching at a missing limb. And their instincts are not merely transactional in in sort of economics or resources. But it's almost their place in the world. Yeah, kind of a paternalistic. It's like a need for status, a Mm. need to be respected and recognized, not just for what you are today, but what you were before. Mm. And what you were before was an empire. And for you to hold on to that nostalgic vision, then you've got to project it onto independent peoples. And I think our statement was inviting all former colonial empires to recognize their own dangerous nostalgia which manifests in different ways, especially in Africa, and invite themselves to truly modernize as democratic republics uh, that are part of a global international system that respects sovereignty. And, of course, the statement in the context it was given ended up really being referred to mostly in relation to what had happened in Ukraine. But our point, I think, was broader than that. Yeah, you were trying to make a larger point. Let's talk a little bit about Ethiopia. And for our listeners who might not be familiar with the context, I mean, you lived there for for a few years, I understand. And there are many layers, given the ethnic diversity of the country, of conflict and tensions. But could you give a, a, a picture of it, at least from your personal perspective or Kenyan perspective? on the situation of what's happening on the ground at the minute and what Kenya's role and interests are? Nation building is never complete. The political foundations of any country, its social contract, the way the state acts in regard to its own citizens and to neighboring states, never reaches a level of perfection or enduring stability. There is always a need to renew yourself and to reinvent yourself as the world changes around you. Africa, over the last few decades, has been trying mightily to engineer some form of stability from the creation of countries that were entirely new and by colonial will, and to take that and then turn it into a thriving, peaceful, democratic society. It's much more difficult than many people acknowledge. And in fact, um, with a light touch, I often um, watch many African officials going to parts of the West for capacity building and governance issues and how to build democracies. And I always joke with those who like doing that. I say, you know, none of these people teaching you actually built their democracies. (laughs) They were just born into them. Yeah. And then they went to school. Yeah. And they did master's degrees and PhDs. <laughs> and now they have lots to say. Sure. <laughs> but, but, but the actual work, the mistakes, the limits of understanding, 
the limits of ability to communicate a vision, uh, to overcome division. That's where democracy and stability is built. And I'm pretty willing to put a bet that Africans are some of the most advanced political engineers in the world today. Not because we've succeeded greatly, but because this has been our work mm. for the last few decades. So I say that to say that Ethiopia is not a former colony, but Ethiopia has many characteristics of needing to bring together disparate peoples into a country that has a history, a history of domination, a history of uh, political control, and a history of grievance. So like the rest of us, Ethiopia has, over the years, constantly tried to realign and renew itself. And those have been attended by conflict, by violence, and so we find ourselves again there. It's tragic what is happening in Ethiopia, but it's not exceptional. One must acknowledge the difficulty of building a united, fair, and stable, and democratic state. So for us in Kenya, who have also struggled mightily to try and establish ourselves as a vibrant democracy, and we're still struggling mightily to keep that going, when we look at Ethiopia, we do not see failure we see a tragic but understandable breakdown of a process of readjustment and change. And our job is to support that just as much as Ethiopia has supported our attempts. And as I said in one of the forums yesterday, when I look at Ethiopia, I do not see a problem. I see an opportunity. I see a large population that has the energy to be a green power exporter, to be a leading manufacturing hub, and to be an anchor alongside Kenya of regional stability. Talk us through a little bit about how that opportunity might be realized, because you're right that there's a tendency to frame what's happening in Ethiopia kind of purely in negative terms, and that's not to downplay the severity of what's going on at the moment, but how do we get from where we are now to that positive vision which you outline? Well, I think Ethiopia is trying to make steps in that direction. They're difficult steps. One, a growing appetite for there to be a ceasefire, for there to be a conversation, and an inclusive national conversation that takes into account the serious and legitimate concerns of different groupings. Now, these groupings, on the face of it, of course, are ethnic it's not just ethnic difference. It is really serious constitutional and political questions. What is to be the shape of the state? Should it be federal? Should it be centralized? Should it be something in between? How does that model accord to our grievances mm. as they exist and the, and the future that we want? And, and, and when you're asking those kinds of questions as a country, there's a very good chance you're asking them in the middle of very serious conflict. Yeah. I mean, there are existential questions about the shape of the country, and it's a question for Ethiopians in all their diversity to answer themselves, right, to construct themselves. So how does Kenya as a friend support that? On multiple fronts, Kenya is really playing out our understanding that our neighborhood is in trouble, and our security and uh, 
prosperity depends on us being able to contribute to stabilization. But what does Kenya really seek in the region? It is our understanding from our own experience that deep-seated reforms that allow you to have a level of stability require you to have very serious national dialogue, very serious process of reflection, and that reflection to then be reflected in your legal and political system. And that is what we're encouraging and hoping for because that then allows you to have lasting stability mm. rather than a sort of stitching together of a few temporary short-term arrangements that will break down a few years from now. What are the stakes? We're talking about a region, if we include Sudan and South Sudan and Somalia and Eritrea, you're talking of a population well north of 400 million, probably close to half a billion. So half a billion people living in a region that is unable to generate sufficient prosperity to employ a very young population, a region that is beset by extreme climate change effects that are changing livelihoods and lifestyles in the rural areas and that is rapidly urbanizing, a region where the expectations of young teenagers and young people in their 20s are informed by a globalized understanding of privilege, wealth, and enjoyment. So your consumption, what feeds your expectations, is not limited by your geography. But your geography deeply limits your dreams. So what's going to happen? Lots of political conflict, lots of political entrepreneurs who would come out of the blue to seize their piece of the pie and leave in their wake states that are barely standing. That would result then in large-scale movement of people, large-scale humanitarian emergencies, and large-scale risks to the rest of the world. That, that's, those are the stakes for us failing. But I don't think we're going to fail. I think part of the rest of the world deals too much the Horn of Africa as a threat. But what if, what if the Horn of Africa instead succeeded? What then? And, and, and that picture is a positive, motivating picture. When you're in the Security Council and you're caught between larger powers and trying to assert your own national interests and interests of those you, you want to speak on behalf of, what does success look like for you? What are the things which you would like to see happen, say, a year from now? Well, a year from now, we will not be in the Security Council so I'm fairly sure my, <laughs> my invitations will dry up. <laughs> and uh, I'll be at, at, at much more peaceful life. What I hope to see is a non-accusatory, non-confrontational conversation about the bold and strategic moves we have to make as Africans and who will be our friend and who will walk with us. 
What I would like to see is France, the UK, the US, Germany, uh, Europe, Asia, understanding that Africa is not a plaything. We're not a territory for them to play out their proxy wars. We have our own dreams that we intend to realize. And our dreams are not inimical to theirs. But they could be inimical to more mercantile, short-term, limited readings of the future. And so a year or five years from now, I hope to help in any way that I can to expand our vision for Africa's future, for Africa itself to be more confident, more assertive, more welcoming to its bold vision for itself and for others to embrace it not as a threat, but as an opportunity. Of course, one person can't do that. But I actually, my interactions make me suspect that there are many people who want that to happen. There are many people who see the way the global system is set, and they know it's not sustainable, not just for Africans, but for themselves. I don't expect a big bang reform of the whole global system. I think there are many parts that will stay the same. But there are some important parts that will change and will offer Africans a much brighter future. And if Africans have a bright future, so do Europeans. If you weren't pursuing diplomacy, is there another passion of yours that you wish you could turn your attention to instead? Yes. Balliol College in Oxford could pay me a million dollars a year to write books. What would they be about? What do you want to write about? I've been reading Arthur Brooks, who was president of the American Enterprise Institute, and he, he talks a lot now about the arc of a career and, and that one understands that as you move on, what you perceive to be your strengths uh, begin to weaken relative to younger people. And yet there are these other strengths that begin to manifest themselves because of your experience and your exposure the ability to explain. So I think a career should, for me, should end with teaching, which closes a circle, allows you to offer the few things you've learned back to people who are about to embark on the journey that you've taken. So I imagine whether now or in the future, I'll probably end up in a classroom somewhere. And if one of those students in the future were to come up to you and say... Professor Martin, should I be pursuing a career in diplomacy? Is it all incredibly hard work or are there some lighter moments which can you know, sustain me through the very difficult work you have to do? What would you say to them? I, I get asked about this kind of thing, uh, but my own career has been very eclectic and very strange and filled with serendipity mm. that I'm unable to, to really recommend oh yes, go ahead and have a career in diplomacy. <laughs> I tend to think that uh, a young person starting today, I would encourage them to find an area of deep passion mm. and expertise and pursue that. And then if they ever think of um, diplomacy, to approach diplomacy as a tool to promote their passion. So whether that's mediation mm. or technology or humanitarian work, diplomacy is a tool. On that note, thank you so much, Martin Kamani, for being my guest in the Mediator Studio. Thank you for having me.
And there we end this edition of the Mediator Studio. To get more episodes as they come out, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also drop me a message on Twitter at Adam Talks Peace. The Mediator Studio is an Oslo Forum podcast brought to you by the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Our managing editor is Christina Buchold and our series editor is Evie Kresner. The producer is Chris Gunnis. Big thanks also to the production teams in Geneva and Oslo. Hope you'll be with me for the next edition. Until then, this is Adam Cooper. Thanks for listening.